Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And this morning, we're starting a new marriage uh, marriage series called Better Together. And there's always tension when you begin preparing um, a marriage series. First of all, as a preacher, you start feeling challenged and convicted because my marriage is not perfect. It's growing, it's maturing, it's better than it has been, but there's still issues, and I always typically find myself starting an idiotic fight with my spouse, with Steph, like right around time of starting this, and I'm just like, I quit, I'm not going to teach on this, I'm going to sit this three weeks out, and it's in those moments of grace from her and redemption through Christ that I'm then encouraged to get up here, hypocrite and all, to invite us to deeper appreciation and understanding of what God intends through biblical marriage. Whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, whether you're married, whether you intend to remain single, this series is for you. Why? Because God created marriage to be a display of his glory and a display of his gospel to the world around us. We're going to begin this morning in Genesis 2, just getting an overview of the origin of marriage, the creation of marriage, the fall in marriage because of sin, and the restoration in marriage through Christ. The ultimate thing I want us to see this morning as we begin talking about better together is experiencing and understanding God's grace towards sinners is foundational to a healthy and unified marriage. Experiencing and understanding God's grace towards sinners is foundational to a healthy and unified marriage. If we don't begin with this understanding of who God is and who we are, then we'll have a very difficult time finding joy and value and appreciation in this unique and mysterious covenant that we call marriage. The theme better together is based upon the idea that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2. And so he began by having Adam name all of the different animals throughout, trying to find a equal, a help for him, and went through all of that. And if you think of all the species that had been created, God gave man dominion and authority over all things, but yet throughout all those namings, he saw that none of them were equal or matching or helpful. And so we pick up in Genesis 2, starting in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called equal. She shall be called the same because she came from me. Every other creature was different, but this is like me. It was a beautiful moment of complementary roles and and placement of unique completion of man and woman reflecting together the image of God. And it was a beautiful moment not only because no longer was man alone, but man together with woman could come and become one to display to the world the glory and unity of God. It was a beautiful and powerful moment. Without the man and woman coming together, humanity would not progress and procreate. In fact, all of us are a result of a man and woman coming together. Without it, it would not occur. 
Life was begotten through this beautiful union. And it was very good. It was very good. And they had relationship with God, and they had perfect relationship with each other. You're going to notice a theme throughout Scripture. An appropriate and right and healthy relationship with God then enables us and empowers us to having healthy relationships with each other, beginning in marriage covenant, but also in interpersonal relationships. And so even if you're here and you're not interested right now in getting married or not interested in you know, working on your marriage or anything else, as followers of Jesus, we're called to have life-giving relationships, not life-taking relationships. We're called to have relationships that are relational and not transactional. And in this creative purpose, God displays who he is through all creation, but brings special attention to the man and woman through that covenant and that glue that is biblical marriage. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. But we'll quickly see it became a broken thing as well. If you move on to Genesis chapter 3, we'll finish up this part in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This perfect state of union, that the covenantal ties that were once in place through mom and dad and authority over child is then replaced as the man and woman become one. It's a new family unit, and it's a good thing. And there's no shame in it, and it brings joy and satisfaction. And then we get to the very next chapter in the Scriptures. We see that the serpent comes and begins whispering lies, saying, hey, did God really tell you not to eat from that tree? Because he just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He's holding out on you. Meanwhile, the message of God has been to them, trust me. The serpent, the devil, was saying, don't trust him. I mean, trust your instincts. That looks really good. Eat it. Eat it. And the woman ate, and so did the man. And immediately their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they were ashamed. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. The terror of God had not been experienced or realized while he had been in unity with God in right relationship. The moment that relationship had broken through man and woman's disobedience, immediately the terror of the Lord, the realization of God and who he is in the sense of brokenness and embarrassment and shame was experienced for the first time. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sin compels us to hide ourselves from God and from each other. Sin leads us to hiding. Sin leads us to wearing masks or, or pitching certain narratives or stories. Sin compels us to spin the story. But beyond hiding, look what happens. 
And the Lord said, he said, who told you that you were naked? Had you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So they had hidden. But then the man said, verse 12, the woman whom you gave me to be with, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It went from full disclosure, full shameless, unadulterated love and enjoyment of God and each other to hiding and then blaming. Notice here, Adam goes for a twofer in blaming. He blames his wife, the woman, the one who's like me but clearly different, gave it to me. The woman that, who? You gave me, God. What he's saying is it's the woman's fault and it's God's fault that he acted on his own desire and rebelled against God. When we sin, sin causes us to hide, and sin causes us to blame. It's a brokenness in relationship, a brokenness in fellowship, a disconnection that happens, removing us from the Creator who makes and defines and sustains and provides, and it removes us. And therefore, it leaves us then compelled to behave and act on our own desires. It's a rebellion. In verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Blame. We hide, and we blame because of sin. It brings separation. It brings brokenness. It brings destruction. And the challenge is, in the church today, there isn't much talk about sin. Now, there's some churches that talk a whole lot about sin and not a lot about Savior or grace or redemption. And so they'll elevate sin at the expense of cheapening the power of grace. And, and so they'll, they'll, they'll heap it upon people, and, and then they'll never find a way to move forward. It's just our identity is found in that brokenness and nothing else, and I think that's a mistake. And then other churches will only talk about forgiveness and grace and flowers and puppies and lollipops. But grace is cheap if you don't understand sin. The power of the gospel is less powerful when you don't understand the power that sin has. It's destructive. It's divisive. It's perverting and it's changing and it's challenging and it, 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 it's oppressive. Whereas grace is abounding in life giving and restoring and reconnecting. Ultimately, until we understand that our capacity and ability to rightly relate is affected by sin, until we can understand that and embrace that, we will always look to other people to make relationships right. Until we understand and trust the fact that sin affects relationships, we will always look to other people and things as a source of remedy. But in reality, there's no counselor, pastor, mediator, community group leader that can heal your marriage without the power of God through grace in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. 
That's unfair to place it on somebody. Until the sin issue has been effectively dealt with through Christ and the grace has been applied, there is therefore no power really to make things right. Your deepest brokenness in your marriage, you can always search through it and find its culprit and root is sin. And therefore, before we go finding any other worldly and earthly remedy, we must first go to the source of who is able to save us from sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, is speaking to a group of believers in the church of Rome. And he says, for when you were slaves, notice that word slaves, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning when you were identified and held by your master, there was no semblance or ability to experience or express true righteousness. You were free from freedom because you were a slave to sin. That's the hold. It's, it's a ruthless master and controller sin is. It's a life-taking, demanding, controlling, destroying master. And if you're not yet in Christ, Regardless of how good you believe you are, your master is sin. And it's a deceitful master that is okay with you not realizing that is your master. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that is what brings control. That is your master. But verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the real benefit? What was the lasting benefit? of that sin. Most of our sin is momentary and the consequence eternal without a remedy of rescue. What were you gaining from it? What were you gaining from your sin? What were you gaining from your own self-righteousness compared to the righteousness of God? What were you doing looking for sinful ways of intimacy and connectiveness? except for emptiness and broken, brokenness along the way. See, there's this, this, this idea that, hey, if you're really honest, when we give in to sin, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of sins that are enjoyable to experience. But the consequence is eternal, and it's loud, and it's deadly. The end of those things is death. When we entertain sin and give in to sin, we are on a one-way track towards death. But, verse 22, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this is good news. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what we are inviting you to, out of sin, into this life. But now that you have been, look, set free from sin, not just remedy for sin, not covered up, but released from sin. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That means becoming more like God, being less like the way you once were, less given to the patterns and habits you had, less given towards the, the, the habits that were destructive. You're, you're no longer bound to those. Those no longer have final say. That's no longer the narrative of your life. That was paid for and dealt with and destroyed. You're no longer defined in those things, but instead, you are now slaves to the life giver, God. 
And the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so there's an immediate remedy and transformation and an ongoing changing and transformation with the ultimate reward being forever with God. Some people call that a cost-benefit analysis. My nerdy business guy friends and lady friends, what's the cost, what's the benefit? Short-term, long-term. The problem is, is we don't take sin seriously. And I don't know about you, I have a tendency to be much clearer in identifying the sins in others than I do having to be aware of my own. And when I become aware of my own, I am quick to act like Adam and I hide and I blame. In church, I'm not preaching for a podcast. I'm preaching to Christ Community Church. We must become more aware of sin in our life so that we can experience the power of our Savior to overcome it, to release us, to set us free. We must mature in our ability to understand that this leaning, this behavior, this opinion is, is giving more towards sin than it is towards life. And he wraps it up beautifully here. For the wages, the cost of sin is death. But the free gift of God, this isn't a prize to be earned. It's not like you go to main event and win all these tickets. You ever been to that money-sucking place? And no offense to main event, but you know what I'm talking about. Like ski ball? I didn't realize what a liability those places were for our parents growing up. Chuck E. Cheese, showbiz. I mean, just coins after coins. And they deceive you, right? You take dollar bills... Or credit cards, you now turn them into coins or plastic cards that don't have any monetary value, and you just keep throwing money at it, right? And you spend like 3000 bucks, and you leave with a teddy bear. Right? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, man, that was worth it, man. I did so good, and they're like, ah, I'm rich. This isn't like that. This is truly a free gift that cannot be deserved, given towards enemies. The wages, the cost of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have to understand that God's grace through Jesus helps restore our relationships. It completely restores our right relationship with God, but it's grace of Jesus alone that empowers us and enables us to fight for our relationships to be restored. And so I want you to embrace this understanding of life-giving or life-taking? Is my life and my actions and my words and my attitudes, are they life-giving or are they life-taking? Sin leads to death. Christ and His grace leads to life. Life-giving, life-taking. Life-taking, life-giving. Death, life. If you're new to Christ Community Church, then I want to welcome you personally and let you know something that you may not yet know, love, or embrace, or just understand. But here's the reality. You are a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You are born into sin. And there's no way or remedy or activity on your own doing or being to be able to make yourself right with the perfection of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But God in his kindness sent his son Jesus to do what you could not do by living a perfect life, fulfilling the laws and the prophecies of Scripture, dying a death that we all deserve on the cross, being dead and buried, and by God's power being raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan so that all who believe on him are forgiven and accepted and made right with God. That's our only hope. And so when you look to the person on your right and say, I am a sinner, look to your person on your right and say, I'm a sinner. Look to your person on your left and say, I'm a sinner. Now, it's going to get louder. Turn to your person on your right and say, you are a sinner. Right? Got really loud. Turn to the person on your left say, you are a sinner. Right? All of a like, yeah, you're a sinner. Right? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Right? Here it goes, right? In us, like, we're walking around with these logs in our eyes. And, and when Jesus talks about judgment in Matthew 7, he's not saying don't judge just make sure you're judging in a standard that is equal to what you're willing to be judged by. So take out the big log so you can go and then remove a speck. It's not that we don't bring uh, reflective help to each other. It's that we come in humility because we have then walked in view of the grace of Christ. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the Bible says that we are redeemed sinners, or it even goes so far as to say that we are saints who still happen to sin. But for us to understand this conundrum of, uh, of how is it that we are forgiven and renewed and made new, but we still have lingering effects of sin, I want to juxtapose a sinful attitude versus a redeemed sinner's attitude as it comes to marriage. And what I'm going to reflect to you is, is just some very practical ways you can start making sense of your life together, whether it's with a spouse or with your friend or with your parents. But this is foundational. Because the third thing I want to point out and where I'm going to camp for a little bit is growing in our understanding of God and of ourselves is essential for a healthy marriage. Growing in our understanding of God and of ourselves is essential for a healthy marriage. Over about 20 years of being in various capacities of vocational ministry, I have met with a lot of couples. I've done a lot of premarital counseling for couples. I've done a lot of marital counseling I've walked with people through some of the lowest points of their life. I've celebrated some of the greatest points in life. And while this comparison isn't exhaustive, it does bring a sense of, of our awareness of sin and where I see it poking its head in our community. And the list can continue. And I want you to think through life taking ways, thinking like a sinner. And then I want you to think through what I share with you in a little bit, thinking like a redeemed sinner. Changing perspective. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, that part of our true worship to God is the changing of our mind. That, that's a consequence of true, biblical, spirit-exposed worship, is that we begin to think differently and have different lenses. And so I want to walk with you thinking through some things that I observe in myself and in your marriages, patterns and behaviors and attitudes as Dr. John Vanderkay has shared with me, and he'll share with you in a few weeks, most families, most married couples, don't end up getting the help they need until three to five years after they needed to get help. And I, I just want to speak into that and say, no, 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 not here. Not here. Dr. John has kindly offered to give um, a marriage checkup. It's just a checkup assessment that each spouse takes online, plus a whole hour of his time giving you feedback on areas that you could focus on. And... and He's only doing it for 100 bucks. But I don't care how healthy or great your marriage is, there's always room to expose sin and brokenness, etc. 
But I want you to think about your relationships and in marriage specifically this way. There is life-giving and life-taking. There is building up of each other or tearing down of each other. And your response might be, I need to be more disciplined to be this way when I'm fighting or when I'm struggling or whatever. But, but you have to understand, and I, I'm taking this from actually a marketing guy I heard, but it's, it's right. He says we're 100% disciplined to our habits. And so what we're dealing with here more than just discipline is habitual behavior, way we naturally, instinctively, in our flesh respond and react to issues. Because a sinful way of thinking is that when we fight, we fight to win. It's me versus you. Now, how does that make sense when we are one? Because if one person wins of the one, that means both people lose. But yet I sit in a room, and I know Dr. John sat in a room, and several other pastors have sat in a room, and we've been with our own spouse having these fights and fighting just stubbornly to be right. That is sinful. If you're banking on anything other than the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ to count you as right, then you're wrong. But sinful patterns lead us to sinfully fight in order to be right. It it just produces this horrible me versus you. And the longer that we invest in that mindset and as longer that we invest in that thinking, the the, the greater the, the toxicity and the divide in our marriage becomes. Another thing I observe often is that in sinful patterns we speak only to be heard. We speak to be heard. We want to hear our voice. We want our point of view to be heard and received. When we talk, we're not looking towards reconciliation. We're our sinful patterns when we, we know we're walking in sin. And part of this, like I said, is I want you to be aware. So as you're going through, you're like, man, that's kind of a sinful attitude. And I know when you're really mad, it's hard to like get the habit of like, mm, time out. And I shared this before, but my wife literally thought I had a psychological problem when I started stepping in and calling a timeout because we would fight. We were just in habits for over a decade of fighting. And I would say, just very angrily, my emotions took a while to catch up to my words, and I was like, da, 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 and I stopped, and I was like, convicted by the Holy Spirit because I'm more aware of what's going on. I'm like, I'm sorry. And she's like, huh, what? I'm like, I'm sorry. She's like, well, your voice doesn't sound like you're sorry, and neither does your face look like it. I'm like, it's got to catch up. I know I'm wrong. I know I'm in sin. I need to take a break. It was weird, especially when we're busy planning churches and starting businesses and raising kids and all these different things. When we're busy, right, we just, we'd rather have negative attention than no attention at all. And so sometimes our emotional tanks would get refilled even though it was through fighting. And it wasn't a healthy pattern. And I would just speak to be, to be heard, and she would speak to be heard. And we weren't listening. The number one problem I find in marriages is communication. I'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But you're speaking to be heard. You need to make your point. And at times you just need to be right. The third thing is, a sinful way of thinking is that our commitment is contingent, is based on our level of happiness. And so we're as committed as as far as we are happy. 
That's a sinful way of thinking. That is missing the mark. That is self-absorbed. And so in a season where we're more happy with our spouse and we have feelings of happiness, the more we might be committed to seeing it through. But the moment we start feeling unhappy, the moment we start looking to, to, to try to find something wrong and pick fights and blame them and then to hide and not approach God. And so it sways. How's your marriage? Oh, it's great. What that really translates to in a sinful pattern is they're making me happy right now. As Gary Thomas writes in his book, Sacred Marriage, what if marriage is more about making you holy than making you happy? If you're looking for happiness, don't get married to make you happy. Joy is there, and there is happiness to be found, but if your commitment's going to be based on the person's ability to meet your deepest and most needs, you're missing the grace of God because that's only met through the person of Jesus. And then if you expect more of that onto your spouse, you're creating an idol out of that person. Not only are you putting unfair expectations on him or her, but you're also missing out on enjoying God. It's robbing you of joy. The next thing based upon that faithfulness then is contingent on the faithfulness of your spouse. There have been times where I've been sitting with couples and one of the spouses have, have been unfaithful, whether financially or maritally or intimate, in intimacy. And so you hear a sinful response is, I'm going to be as faithful to him or her based upon their faithfulness to me. Anything on top of that, I'm just better than him or her. I've heard couples more than one time say, well, if they've been unfaithful, then I'm going to go be unfaithful too because I need retribution. I need to be equal again. I need payment. I need punishment. I need a cause for him or her, the pain that he or she has caused to me. That's sin. That's missing the mark. That's life-taking. It happens, but that's not a basis of gospel. That's a basis of retribution and punishment. Not one of grace. And one of the ways that I think is deceitful and there's an undercurrent just eating away at our marriages is the, the mentality of the grass is always greener somewhere else. And it plays out more than just, oh, I, if I were with that person or this type of person, I'd be happier. That is clearly one of it. But part of it is you're imagining your spouse to be someone completely different than who they are. This is a sinful pattern. It's a destructive pattern. There's no good that comes from it. There's no life that comes from it. That is life-taking rather than life-giving. And one of the ways that we see this just become toxic in marriage is through the use of pornography. Putting these images and these desires deep in men and women's hearts of people who are acting to make you feel desired and wanted, giving you an unrealistic reality of what intimacy was created or intended to be, often a precursor towards leading to greater infidelity and cheating. But it begins with the grass is always greener. And while that might be true on a temporary basis at time, overall, the Lord is the one who creates the grass. And the Lord is the one that redeems it and makes it green. But when we sit there entertaining these thoughts and believing that if my spouse was just like her, 
or if my spouse was just more like him, then I would be happier or more faithful. Friends, that happens a lot. That is sin that needs to be repented of. Shift from the other acreage and shift your eyes to the Lord. Your spouse is created in the image of God. And if your spouse is a follower of Jesus, they're being conformed to the image of God. Let's not forsake that truth and that reality. Brother, let's engage in asking God, God, help me to see what you see. God, help me to see what they see and press into that. Friends, we've got to grow up. We've got to start being aware of our own sinful proclivities. We have to be aware of our own sin and our own Savior so that through confession and repentance, we can then realign to more redemptive patterns in our marriage. And the last thing that I see all the time in marriage is just caring about being right. Spouses are just dividing because they want to be right. As James writes, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness that God requires. It's in James 1. Uh, 27-ish, 21-ish. Care about being right? I have this habit, and I've shared it with you before, and I'm confessing it, I'm getting better. I have hoarding tendencies that I've broken with, like, keeping stuff, like, that I don't need, you know. I was talking with a friend, younger friend yesterday, and he's like, but you might need it someday, right? That's my mentality about everything. I might need that someday. I do that with clothes. I'm like, those jeans aren't dirty. I only wore them three hours. That shirt's still ironed. I can get away with wearing it tomorrow because I'll see different people. And so it seems like a waste of time and energy to put them back on hangers and put them in the closet. Why not just lay them nicely on the floor next to my bed? Problem is I start clothes hoarding on the side of my bed more and more and more and more. My wife is very neat. Very organized. When we moved in, I mean, she goes from being five foot with a size six shoe to marrying a dude with like extra large and size 14 shoes. Just my stuff was big. And my stuff took up a lot of space in her 600 square foot apartment. So that was difficult. But when I started hoarding clothes, and she just got done with it being by the bed, and so I moved it into the closet on the floor, and there started being a pile there. And it drives her nuts. And there's moments, right, where she's like, why? Why are you you, right? <laughs> and so I now have a place where I, 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 like a much smaller square foot in the closet where I'm allowed to keep things that I know I'm going to wear again. I'm starting to use these things called hangers, crazy. Um, and, and or, but, but, you know, we fought about it, and the more we fought about it, and she fought to be right, she was right, but then I was more stubborn, right? Because sin begets sin. Right, And so in her pride, and meanwhile, so here's what I started doing. I'm not proud of it. But she and now my daughters have the same thing as when we run out of toilet paper, we don't put it on the roll, we set it on top of the empty roll. I can't bother to put my clothes away, but I'll put a toilet paper roll on a roll. And so what I started doing, just to show you how godly I am, I started throwing the empty rolls on the corner next to the toilet to see how many would stack up. I would put them back on and throw another roll. Put it back on, throw another roll. And I was like, piles. I was like, it's, it's a fire hazard. 
I tried berating, I tried yelling, I tried passive-aggressive role stacking. And none of that worked. None of it worked. And it was divisive, and it was breaking. And and really, for me, the toilet paper roll thing was less about toilet paper roll. It was just more about my clothes thing. And I wanted something to be right about. Right? It's not difficult to take it off, put it on there, and throw it away in the trash can that's right there. It's not hard for me to do that. And that's the loving thing for me to do. But no, I wanted to be right, because I was like, well, you care about my clothes, I care about the toilet paper. I mean, because how many times you reach over for some toilet paper, it falls off and just rolls out. And then you have to roll it back on, and it's all off balance, and it rolls, it's just, it's just we care about being right. But now I want to juxtapose those things with the redeemed sinner, the the one who's walking in the Spirit, the one who's looking to to live a a Christ-centered, God-glorifying life. So if a sinner, a sinful pattern is fighting to win, then a redeemed sinner fights an issue, not the person. And so when we're having an, an argument, we're not just fighting to be right, we're fighting the issue. This is where we're not understanding each other, and we need to fight to make it right. We need to understand and find solutions at work. It, it goes from me versus you to us versus the issue. Just recently, more recently than I care to admit, I was having a conversation with Stephanie, and she's keeping me accountable for some things and patterns in my life. And I said, I just feel like you're just choosing to come down hard, hard on me. She's like, it's not your issue, it's ours. When I have an issue, it's our issue. When you have an issue, it's our issue, it's our issue. I'm not coming at you like I'm better. I'm coming at you with you, because it's ours. And that was just, it switched in my brain. I repented. She's for me. Why? Because her hope is in Christ, not in my obedience. And so when she's hoping in Christ, she can come alongside and we can fight the issue. Look, some of y'all need to have some fights about money. You're not stewarding it well. Some of you are savers. Some of you are spenders. Some of you are just doing crazy things. Some of you need to fight about marital intimacy. But you need to fight the issue, not each other. You need to say, hey, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. Let's figure this out. And if we need to, let's get a mediator, or let's get a counselor, or let's bring in a pastor. But let's go after the issue, not just go after each other. We fight an issue and not the person. We're not fighting to win. That's just death-giving. We want to be life-giving. We fight the issue. We struggle together. If our spouse is struggling, we're struggling. We come alongside, and we pray, and we hope. It's not that it doesn't hurt at times. We own the hurt, and we communicate the hurt. But instead of speaking to be heard, we then listen to understand and then speak for clarity. It's a difference. We, we, don't, we don't just talk to hear ourselves talking to be right. We, we listen to understand. We ask clarifying questions, and then we speak into those things to bring clarity. Is this what you're saying? Is this what you're experiencing? Is this how you're feeling about this? Because if you start listening to your spouse and they say, when you don't pay attention to how much you're eating and you're gaining weight, it makes me feel scared because I want you around to walk, to walk our daughters down the aisle and to dance at their wedding and to play with your grandbabies. And when you start hearing that, it's, it's less personal, like, I just think you're fat and I want to look at something better. It's not that. We're fighting an issue, not a person. And yes, it's embarrassing. One of the greatest ways I've learned to fight is just to own when I'm embarrassed. 
right? Adam, where were you? Well, I was hiding because I knew I was naked. He felt embarrassed. And what did he do when he was embarrassed? He hid and then he blamed. And so one of the ways I deal with my own sin that comes out of me is to own my sin. I feel exposed. I'm embarrassed. I don't have a good excuse. And in that moment of vulnerability, there can either be grace applied or wrath. We listen to understand and speak for clarity. We're fighting the issue, not each other. The next thing is, a sinful pattern is commitment depends on happiness. A redeemed, centered pattern, a life-giving pattern is commitment is based upon God's faithfulness to his promises. So your level, your, 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 your level of commitment isn't dependent on the other person's commitment or happiness. You're committed based upon God's faithfulness to his promises. He is for your marriage. He is for you. He is for your victory. He is for redemption. He is for you beginning to experience eternal life now and forevermore. So God's commitment to us is the fuel or the impetus for the, the, the redeemed view of our level of faithfulness and commitment. If you're entertaining the grass's greener thoughts, then I want to remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that the grave is empty, which is physical and spiritual evidence that we have hope for better days. And so a sinful, death, deadly pattern is grass's greener thoughts. The redeemed sinner, the life-giving pattern is we are hopeful for better days. It doesn't mean that it's not hard work. It doesn't mean it doesn't take... Effort, it doesn't mean that we're not going to fall and sin along the way, but what it means is that it doesn't have to remain this way. Because the grave is empty, we have an eternal hope of redemption and reconciliation and healing and hope. And it might take counseling and it might take accountability and it might take help and it will take community, but ultimately Jesus is committed to our better days. And the last way I want to emphasize this juxtaposition of thinking in a sinful pattern versus thinking in a redeemed pattern, a life-giving pattern. A life-taking pattern is we care just about being right. Where a redeemed, a life-giving attitude and posture cares about being helpful. And I, I want to be very clear, something that might be helpful to you or a way that might be helpful to you may not help your spouse in the same way. And we have to understand that. What helps you may not help your spouse, so you may have to ask a question, is this helpful? And if they don't know or say, no, this is not, then you can say, how can I be helpful? I really want to help. And... And they might give an answer, I don't know. And just as your pastor and as your friend, I want to tell you, that's okay to start with, that's not okay to finish. And it's okay to try things and be wrong. But we have to be for one another, not against one another. Your righteousness at the expense of your spouse's sin is no righteousness at all. Your pursuit of righteousness found in Christ then compels you 
to help your spouse experience life and better days and grace. And that doesn't mean you do it alone and you do it in a hidden manner. That may, may mean that one way that you help is invite other people in to help with you. But the sinful pattern cares about being right. The redeemed pattern, life-giving pattern, cares about being helpful. And I think we have to understand that anger is an emotion. It's a reaction to things that happen. There are things that should appropriately anger us. And that's why Paul writes, be angry but do not sin. It is possible to feel anger, to feel hurt, and still not fall into sin. It's possible. And anger is appropriate. And there's times we react inappropriately. And we need to repent, own it. We need to learn to take a time out, saying, you know what? Hey, I need 10 minutes because my anger is, is juiced up. And here's the reality. I'll speak, since I'm a man, I'm going to speak to the guys, but I'm sure it's true for the ladies. We have a tendency to unload all of our frustration and anger about all the things going on throughout our day on the one we trust can handle it the most. Unfortunately, that tends to be our spouse or our kids and not the Lord. I'm guilty of that. Looking for a place to deposit it, looking for someone to absorb it, I bring it home at times instead of placing it on the Lord. A couple of ways I've been learning to grow in that redemption is to have a moment of prayer before I go inside. God, this is frustrating me. I'm angry about this. This is going on. What, what am I feeling? What am I going on? And then when I get home, I have a, a five to ten minute period of transition where I go in and I change my clothes and I, I then prepare my heart and my mind and then appropriately start communicating what's going on. That's taken years and I fail at it miserably still. But there's ways to, to engage in life-giving patterns Yesterday, I was, I was speaking at an event Friday night and Saturday night locally at a youth event, and man, I, I still love communicating at youth events. The Lord still, for some miraculous reason, gives me favor with teenagers, but man, it wipes me out, teaching and you know, just the energy and everything else. And so yesterday afternoon, Stephanie's like, what do you need? And I was with my friend David helping them move in their house, and he's finally like, hey, do you need to go take a nap? I don't know if I was acting grumpy or what. He's like, do you need a nap? I was like, baby Casey needs a nap, right? I mean... <laughs> Sometimes, and so I just went home and I told Steph, I was like, man, I feel wiped out. And she's like, well, why don't you get some rest and I'll take the girls out for a couple hours. And why don't you get some rest and then spend some time in the Word? Would that be helpful to you? Or would you rather us be around? And I was like, is this a trick question? <laughs> but we trust each other now. We've, we've grown to be for each other. And so I knew she was just looking out for me. And she said, you know, and I said, yeah, I, I love you guys. And if you all were banking on spending time with me today, I definitely want to make that work, but if I could have a couple hours to rest, to pray, to read scripture, to just recalibrate my heart and my mind, that would help. She's like, absolutely. And she could have laid on me how I'm so busy and I don't have enough time for my family and all these other things, but earlier she said, how can I come alongside and help? There was no transaction, it was all relational and it was all grace. Is it always that way at the sea's home? No. But we're starting to experience greater levels of intimacy and redemption and hope. And church, that's what I want for us. Why? Just so you'll be happier? No, not just that. Because I'm convinced you are happiest and most filled with joy when you're living your life glorifying God. 
And whether you're married yet, not yet married, don't want to be married, we need to be for the covenant of marriage. Why? Because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the covenant of marriage is a gospel display to the world around us. The covenant between a man and a woman, the mystery of that union, the fighting and falling forward of that relationship reveals God's glory. But until we experience and understand God's grace towards sinners and that it's foundational to a healthy and unified marriage, we're going to fight for new tactics, we're going to go for new tricks, we're going to read self-help, we're going to try to change our attitude and our mind, but until we understand the consequential, gravitational nature of the grace of God given through Jesus Christ, until we embrace it and we hold on to it and we lean into it, we'll never experience the power of the gospel in our marriages, in our families, in our communities. This is why it's important when I talk to people and I say, how's your marriage? They often say, good. And I say, what's good about it? I, want, I believe followers of Jesus are meant to have great marriages, life-giving marriages, transformational marriages, marriages where we're discipling one another through growth. We're being strengthened and empowered to experience increasing amount of joy in God through our love of each other. And if you're not there yet or have not experienced that yet, there are better days ahead. But that's not merely found in a church or in a counselor or in a pastor. That's found through Christ. It's found in the context of a community that is for those things. And it's found falling forward and fighting for what is true. And that's my hope as we explore what it really looks like and means to be better together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who is our hope, who is our sustainer, who is our redeemer. And Lord, I don't want to be foolish to assume that all of us are just doing great right now in our marriages. Lord, I know there's brokenness in this room. I know there's sin in this room. I know that there is need of redemption and restoration in this room. And I ask, Spirit, that you would move us towards those greater things in you. Lord, I pray that as we evaluate our sinful patterns, and the patterns of redemption in our life to be either life-giving or life-taking, that we will be more aware, that we will lean into more maturity, that we'll be open to confessing and, and apologizing and restoring rather than just needing to fight and be right and thinking and dreaming about if our spouse was that person or better or different, but rather, God, that we would trust in your sovereignty. You've placed this person in our lives, and you're calling us to learn to love like you have loved us even when it's undeserved. So help us, Lord, mature. Help the young men and women here who are not yet married to have a grander vision of marriage that it might inform the way that they date and court and engage and all those other things, that they would have a, a, a deepened hope in you. Father, we need that and we need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.